Welcome back to Good Distinctions, where good distinctions are the spice of life. I'm Will Wright, your host, and joining me today is Jen Arnold. Jen, welcome. Hi, thanks. So, Jen, who are you? Uh, my name is Jen. Um, I live in Phoenix, and I graduated from Franciscan with my master's in catechetics and also theology, and I started writing. Um after I graduated, I realized I needed a place to use my skills. So I asked my pastor if I could start writing for our church bulletin. And he said, yes. And before I knew it, I had a bunch of articles and I put them on my website, Catholic Heart Ablaze. And now you can go there and you can read over 200 articles. Um, I post every week. You can subscribe, have them delivered to your inbox. And you can follow me on LinkedIn where I post them every week. Excellent. So catholicheartablaze.com. Uh, mm -hmm. And the reason that I asked you on today, and uh, it's wonderful to have you, you are preparing a series for Lent uh, on the spiritual life, according to St. Francis, written by St. Bonaventure. So it's like double stacking holiness. Uh, really excited about this. And I should mention also, like, um, I met you just before I got my master's in catechetics and evangelization and theology and Christian ministry from Franciscan. So I, I followed in your footsteps and copycatted you. Um, but Thank it's, you. It, it's been a lot of fun. And I, I always love uh, connecting with other people who did the, the MACE program. Yeah. Um, so what, what is this book? I know you, you have it with you. So if you can so, show us. This is the book. It's the life of St. Francis of Assisi by St. Bonaventure, um, Tam Classics. I believe this book was assigned for one of my courses, but I don't remember which one. <laughs> and it's been a go-to ever since. This is my like third time reading it um, all the way through, but then like I go back to it often to reference it. Um, I wouldn't call it an easy read just because the mm. language is dated, but it's not an incredibly difficult read. Um, it's not a biography in the sense of telling St. Francis's life from beginning to end. Um, mm. It's more, it's got 16 chapters highlighting different aspects of St. Francis's approach to things, his virtues. Um, there's a chapter on receiving his stigmata, which I don't cover in my series. Um, but it's, it's basically a manual of how to mm. be like, St. Francis of Assisi more than a, a, a biography. Well, and I, I heard this uh, story and I'm not sure. I think it's true. Um, I haven't been able to source it, but St. Francis apparently went on a mission of sorts to convert the Sultan, a uh, Muslim Sultan. Oh. Mm -hmm. And he <clears throat> thought that he would be killed in the process and thus become a martyr and go straight to heaven no such luck. The Sultan just thought he was kind of a funny guy and uh, he went home. Um, but I think it shows a lot about who St. Francis is. This is not a uh, comfy kind of guy. Uh, no, pretty intense. Yeah. And I'll actually cover that story. Um, that's in his, um, in the virtue of charity, I believe is what it was. And he was seeking martyrdom. Um, and the Sultan did admire his mm. passion for what he was doing. And that's why he wasn't killed. But, uh, Francis received a, uh, 
vision or, you know, which chastised him and said, go home. <laughs> You're not to be martyred. So <laughs> he was seeking martyrdom, but that wasn't God's will for him. And so he he went home in obedience and did not receive the martyrdom he desired. But yeah, he's he's an intense guy. So my husband and I, and maybe this was part of what inspired this, took a uh, trip um, this past summer to celebrate our 20th anniversary. And we hit several pilgrimage spots um, in Europe. And one of the places we went was Assisi. And it was, it was incredible. So St. Francis' church is kind of in the bottom. And then a church was built on top of that. And then a church was built on top of that. So to go visit Francis's tomb, you have to go you know, down into the depths where, where his church actually was. Mm-hmm. And it's stark and cold and stone <laughs> and his his um, casket is just gray, plain stone. It's got bars <laughs> around it to keep it, you know, and then you kind of emerge out of there into Assisi, which is now this tourist destination where there's shops and um, goods and fun things and wine. And I had, that's where I had the best goat cheese of my life was out at the restaurant in Assisi. And I'm like, you know, St. Francis is probably rolling over in his grave right now. <laughs> All the decadence and goat cheese. It was a lot of fun, but um, definitely spoke to, to kind of the man he was in contrast to the world that we live in today. So well, and, and you were saying before we started recording that uh, his, uh, his spiritual sister, um, St. Clair, had a very different tomb. So he, it even kind of shows, I think, his heart that he was accepting this extreme poverty for himself, but he didn't expect it of everyone. Yeah, his brothers for sure, but um, he, he Claire was treated a lot. Um, her, let's just say her tomb looks much different from, um, Francis's. She's, she's got a decorated ornate tomb with her like kind of image across the top and there are flowers and she, (laughs) you can definitely see the contrast of the masculine versus the feminine. Now there is like a room off to the side of Claire's that shows that she did wear the tunic and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, lived a very austere life and a poor life, but, she was very honored in, in her death, whereas he preferred to just keep his humility about him mm-hmm. and, and, and be as simple as and plain as possible. So it was a definite contrast. One of the things that I love um, about St. Francis, I'd like to get to the, to the book a little bit, but um, just for those listening, I think one of the things that was really emphasized in, uh, in the program that we did with Franciscan was just the, the Franciscan spirit of the incarnational principle, which I love is, is as Catholics, we have this sacramental worldview where we understand that we're body and soul and that these things matter. As Peter Crave says, we're embodied souls or ensouled bodies, whatever way you slice it. And, and so this incarnational principle is seeing that because Jesus became man and then ascended in his humanity to, uh, return to uh, heaven and the Godhead. It's like, that's what we're called to as well. That, that divinization, 
that as St. Athanasius said, we become God so that, or God became man so that man could become like God. And so this incarnational principle was alive and well. And <clears throat> Francis lived some time ago. Um, and he was the first one that we know of to have like a nativity set or a nativity scene, which I think is also a neat detail. Um, it's the one time of year, of course, that all Protestants become Catholic and, and idols are okay. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> statuary and these things. But like that, that incarnational worldview is so vital. And I'm sure that comes through in the book. It does. Yeah. And speaking of the nativity um, in Assisi, they have a nativity displayed outside of his childhood home, which is pretty cool. <laughs> it's not his, I don't think, but it, it was just, you know, it was there as a reminder that he created this. But yeah, it does come through as I go through the virtues. You'll see that everything starts. It, it's I find, and I'll get to it, that he approaches each virtue a little bit differently than we do today because he mm. always starts with God, even before he starts with other. Um, so we'll get through that. But yes, he very much, uh, God is at the center and God is owed everything above mm. anything else. And then that made him more, more like God, like you said, and, and earned him, I think is, is he, I think pretty sure he's the first one to receive the stigmata. So, you know, he, he was rewarded for, um, for doing that. So with this series, I mean, you said it's, um, I think you said there's 16 chapters. I mean, it's a yeah, substantial text. So how yeah. did you choose what goes in the series? Um, so the way I did it was I chose to focus on his virtues because I Lent is a time to root out sin, but in order to root out sin, we have to replace it with something else. We can't mm -hmm. just, or we'll have a hole, a black hole. So we have to cultivate virtue to fill in where the sin was. And so kind of the front end of the book is, you know, how he developed the habit and whatnot. And then the mm -hmm. end of the book is, you know, the stigmata and the miracles that were kind of performed after his death. So I really zoned in on the middle six chapters that highlighted each of these virtues that mm. he demonstrated. And I, it doesn't explicitly say this, but I think St. Bonaventure put them in a hierarchical order where they built on top of one another leading, leading to the greatest. So, um, which led to his stigmata. So, um, so I start with chapter five, which is his austerity. And then I just move on mm -hmm. from there and, um, and I will tell you all about it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, what is the, uh, what is the, uh, the sequence? I mean, without getting um, too much into the spoilers, I don't want to rehash the whole thing, but no, it's okay. Let's see. So we've got, um, his austerity and then his humility and obedience, um, mm. poverty, piety, charity, and then the thing that powered it all was his fervor and diligence in prayer. So whenever I learn about the virtues and whenever I sort of investigate this, I always immediately think of humility as the first one, right? Seeing ourselves as we are before God and no more, no less that this is who we are. Um, and I want to say it was GK Chesterton in his biography of St. Francis kind of gives this 
this visual, which Mumford and Sons also use in the song, the cave of, uh, of Francis, like coming out of the cave, walking on his hands, seeing the world hanging upside down, understanding dependence when you know the maker's hand that everything rests on, like you were saying, like everything is around God, everything clings to God and then kind of understanding ourselves in light of that. So what, how does Bonaventure define austerity? Like, what is it? So before I think you're right, I think we usually start with humility, but I think it's important to understand what Francis was before he Mm. was the Francis that we know. So he was a wealthy merchant who by his own admission was a sinful man living the life. He wanted success. He wanted money. So for, and then his conversion was slow. It it took a a series of several events um, to finally get him to let go. So I think we start with austerity because it's where Francis had to start. He had to to shed the old to take on the new. And so I think we start with the austerity um, mostly because of who Francis was. Um, So... Austerity is a strictness of life, a way that we live that um, kind of cuts off our sensual passions and our needs and our wants um, that so that we can focus on God. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we're constantly seeking comfort, um, good food, comfortable clothes and comfortable bed, then we're focused on us. Right. Mm. And so Francis wanted to focus on God. So Francis, he fasted and fasted and fasted. He would not cook his food. He would eat as much raw food as possible. He wouldn't flavor it. Um, He wore a rough, um, thin tunic, be exposed to the cold and the discomfort on his skin. He would uh, sleep sitting up with or without a pillow. Like when he had a pillow, it would torment him. Um, so he <laughs> would get rid of the pillow. Um, so it, what it does is it cultivates a detachment from the world and the worldly comforts that we experience, which are good. But when we're too attached to them, well, then there's trouble. <laughs> so when we, when we seek our comfort. So that's why uh, St. Francis starts with austerity and mm. he really lived it. Um, now, in our own life here today, before anyone seeks extreme austerity, they should seek a spiritual director. <laughs> yes. Um, don't do anything crazy. But, uh, you know, here now, there are things that we can do to deny ourselves, especially during Lent, because this is a yeah. Lenten series. Fasting, this is why we give things up. And then there are things that we can do just day to day just to, you know, detach, right? You can sleep on the mm-hmm. floor for one night a week or get rid of your pillow or take cold showers, as Exodus 90 likes to tell people to do. Take a cold shower. You know, um, things that make you a little bit uncomfortable so that you detach from those comforts of the world and focus more on God. Well, and there's definitely a, a very strong spiritual 
power in that. I mean, it really does work. Um, I, I've done Exodus 90. I did Exodus 90 once all the way through. Um, and then I did it two more times part of the way through. Um, my husband too. <laughs> and uh, I, then I said, I'm, I'm never doing this again. Um, it's, it's too much all at once to do more than once, I think. Um, but I'm a, I, I like my bed and my pillow and tasty food and I'm a uh, soft, weak willed fella, I guess I, but Exodus 90. So first time I did it, absolutely hated it for like a month. It was just the worst. I'm like, why am I doing this? Um, especially the cold showers. And then I, I was like, okay, hold on. I live in Phoenix. Are they ever really that cold? Probably not get over it. But I found myself really struggling with uh, the lack of the technology bit, uh, especially the phone and the computer. And I didn't realize I had no sort of self-knowledge in this area clearly because I would instinctually just sort of grab for my phone, which wasn't there because I didn't have it on me. And my hand was just sort of doing this clutching thing. I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to detach and go do something. Um, but after a while, it sort of becomes second nature. And then when I went back after Exodus 90 and Easter, I found myself using it far less. Uh, I mean, I have an iPhone, so screen time, like it actually tells me how long I'm using the phone and on what. And it was a massive drop even after I went back to it. So on the one hand, like psychologically, there's a lot of, uh, of fruit from detaching from these things, becoming healthier, finding a moderation. And then spiritually seeing that as well, that we're able to focus more on what's around us. Um, so I, I, I love that he begins with that. It makes a lot of sense. Like you're saying, he's, he's a wealthy, um, his family were cloth merchants, right? Is that, yeah, yeah. So like he had a lot of money um, yeah, and did. a lot of things. So when God says, of- you know, let it all go, that's, that's a lot to let a go. Lot. Yeah. Yeah. And what you were saying about the technology. So I, it, this occurred to me many times as I was writing this series was how much easier it must've been for Francis without, a, without an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is a different world. And actually for this Lent, where our whole family is putting our um, technology on grayscale hmm. um, just to make it more bland and boring and, and whatnot. Um, we're not going to go Exodus 90 on it, but we're going to definitely make it more difficult. But yeah, technology is a big obstacle for us today that Francis didn't have, but he, he had his own problems, all the fineries that he had to give up. So um there's a fun little uh, accessibility shortcut on iPhone that you can set the side button. If you click it three times in succession, it triggers whatever function. And so I did that one Exodus 90 where if I click it three times, let's see if it works. Yeah, it goes to grayscale. I don't know if you saw that. Oh. And then I can turn it back on. Oh. Um, so, I don't want anyone to do that, though. Don't turn it well, back on. No, but <laughs> what I found is that even after Lent. So if I find myself looking at the phone too much, I don't have to go into any settings. I just click it three times and I'm back to grayscale. Hmm. And I, I'm kind of like sort of allowing a reset. Um, 
So that's been useful for me anyway, because I did that one time. Um, and it, it's funny how when it's not bright and shiny and flashy and colorful, we don't want to look at it. <laughs> Well, that's what my husband, he, he's had it on grayscale from time to time. And he's like, it is so boring <laughs> that you don't even want to be on it. And I'm like, great, let's all do it. We're, we're doing it. And the kids were like, sure. Okay. So I'm going to go for it. Well, and it's, it, it's interesting. Uh, and I, I'm really excited to, to read what you have to write and to dive into this book at some point too, maybe over Lent, that'll be kind of my uh, adventure, but I, uh, I love my phone. Okay, maybe I shouldn't say I love my phone, but like I love what it can do. Um, yeah. It helps me be organized. It keeps me on track with with good distinctions and all sorts of other things. Keeps me in contact with my colleagues and my wife and uh, my parents. So, like, there's a lot of good that can come from it. But again, the uh, the austerity that Francis is calling us to is to detach from the things that are distracting us from God. Mm-hmm. So, how do we? Uh, maybe this comes up in the series, but like, how do we cultivate that? How do we fill in the hole, so to speak? I mean, it's just a, it's just an intentional choosing, um, to, so I use the analogy of the pebble in the shoe. You put a pebble in your shoe and you walk around all day with it in your shoe and you intentionally choose discomfort, mm-hmm. which is so contrary to our nature, right? But you do that. And I, that's the analogy that I use, but it's whatever speaks to you. So Mm. like I've been, I've talked to friends about this, you know, one night a week, sleep on the floor. Um, You know, one day a week, take a, take a cold shower fast, fast every, we've lost um, Wednesday fasting, right? When Wednesday abstinence for me is something that has, um, dropped off in modern times where we should probably reinstate that. And um, I heard the reason that we used to abstain on Wednesdays was to atone for the sin of Judas, which took place on Wednesday, right? Hmm. So before Holy Thursday, you had to do his betrayal, which was on the Wednesday. And that's why the church practiced these things and we just lose sight of these things. So it's an intentional choosing something, you know, Mm -hmm. and the more, the better again, without a spiritual director, be careful, but like choose to detach from a worldly comfort and make yourself uncomfortable. You know, don't cut the, the tag out of your shirt. That's itchy or, you know, all these different things that you can, you know, don't put spices, don't season your steak very well, make it bland, you know, whatever it is. That's what Francis Mm -hmm. used to do. Oh, um, he would not drink cold water um, because it was too refreshing. You know, he would just drink warm water, you know? So there's things that you can do. You just have to be intentional about it Mm. and embrace it and do it because you, because, because Jesus did it because Jesus wasn't comfortable on the cross when he was doing that for you and for me and for everyone else, Jesus wasn't comfortable. And so the least we can do is put the pebble in our shoe, you Mm. know, is how I kind of look at it. So it's about just intentionally um, choosing this. So. Well, and I, I'll, I'll, I will say when I did Exodus 90, the first time I went, 
into asceticism and trying to read the desert fathers and sort of learning from the greats of asceticism. Like, what is it? How does it work? Why are we doing it? And it was so wonderful. It was so freeing um, because as you say, it unites you with the, unites yourself with the cross of Christ in such a tangible way. I mean, obviously we're not suffering the lengths that he did, but there's no wasted suffering. That's one of the beautiful things about being Catholic is all of the suffering that we offer up intentionally becomes a prayer, becomes grace for us and for the world uh, and for those most in need of it. And how awesome is that? Mm-hmm. Um, but asceticism, the, the root of that word is ascesis of, of practice, of training like an athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things I want to talk about, though, is so like you've mentioned this multiple times, make sure you do this under a spiritual director. Why? Why is that so important? Because I, I will I'll, I'll share real quick about um, sort of my own experience. Like I, uh, I used to have pretty awful scrupulosity um, when I was in college for a, a time and it was debilitating. Um, and scrupulosity is a spiritual disease for those listening where you see something that's good and you think it's evil or you see something that's evil and you think it's even worse than it actually is. It's this sort of compounding issue. So you be going to confession and confessing things that aren't even sins. So there's something seriously disordered there. And it takes a lot to get out of that because you can't get out of it by yourself. It takes grace and it takes someone else. It takes a mentor or a spiritual director to sort of lift you out of that uh, or a good confessor. Um, who can see that as, okay, this is not someone being pious. This is someone actually suffering from the disease of scrupulosity. Um, And I could see someone easily going towards that, especially if they've lived a very lackluster life thus far, and they have a big conversion experience, and they decide, all right, I'm all in for Christ. I need to do everything humanly possible. And they go way overboard. So anyway, that's all the thoughts that are kind of jostling around in my head. So I think you're definitely correct that the scrupulosity does play a huge role. Um, But there's also a flip side of that where it could appeal to pride. Mm. I'm so holy. I'm doing all these great things. And then, you know, God's actually not willing this for you. You're willing it. Hmm. For, um, and I don't, I don't even want to say appearances sake because it doesn't necessarily show on the outside, but it, you, it, it comes from a place of self as opposed from God's will, right? So a spiritual director will help you um, discern, you know, as they get to know you, as they get to know your prayer life will help you to discern what you're being called to by God versus what you're being called to from your own sense of pride and things. So I think, I think it can be either, or I think you can Mm -hmm. go one way on scrupulosity and I think you can go the other way on pride. So it's, it's the little things are fine to, to take on by yourself. But if you start like getting crazy, it's time to find help. (laughs) Well, and and that there was a good distinction. So thank you for that. Um, So if people want to set about sort of practicing this, um, 
you know, I, when I worked at a parish, this was a, a question that I would get asked a lot is, okay, I want a spiritual director. How do I find one? Um, so, I mean, what, what sort of advice would you give those listening? Cause we're talking about people from all over the place in all sorts of different circumstances. Yeah. I mean, what's I mean, the, what's something to look for? Um, well, the first place you can start is asking a priest that, you know, your parish priest, someone that you're close to, they're not all trained in spiritual direction, nor are they all equipped for it, but they can either start or they can direct you to the right place. You can also contact your diocese. Um, I know um, like the diocesan um, office has kind of like a core list of, of good ones. Um, but I, I mean, always you can start with your parish priest and then mm. say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this. And then they can be like, Whoa, or, you know, go over here or like, ah, you know, don't do that. But, you know, that's a good, just find a trusted priest and, and um, kind of go from there. There are spiritual directors that aren't priests. The only, um, and, and they're, they're good too. The, the, the benefit of having a priest um, as a spiritual director is that you can add confession to, to the practice, um, mm. the sacrament of recon reconciliation. Um, it just helps, but there are others as well, but start with, start with a trusted priest. Yeah. Well, the only thing I'd add to that is <clears throat> if, uh, if you're not going to confession regularly, start there. <laughs> That's true. Right. So, um, but then I think also from that, you sort of get a feel of, I mean, you can see the priest's heart and confession so clearly, and you sort of get a sense of um, sort of two places, either in the pulpit or in the confessional, right? Because if you have someone who preaches courageously at the ambo and they're merciful and just almost like a surgeon, they can just ask the right questions to kind of get down to the root of the sin you're dealing with. I mean, that's just, that's the best right there. Yeah. So if you find someone like that, I would say absolutely talk to them. But just to echo uh, what you said is I, uh, I was talking to, um, I was, I was in confession um, with a priest one time and I said, you know, father, I'd really love to talk to this, talk to you about this sometime. And he was like, great, bring it up after confession. I was like, okay, when? And he was like, no, like right after absolution, bring it up. So then we can talk about it. I'm like, Perfect. So he knew nice. the, he knew the rules and, yeah, um, nice. you know, we, we got through confession and then we just had another conversation after that. And it was very, um, low key. It wasn't like a really rigid, okay, let's set up a meeting. Um, so it doesn't always have to be this sort of long-term commitment because mm -hmm. I've tried that as well, where I've met with a priest intentionally for spiritual direction. And we got through one sort of meeting and, I think we both sort of said, all right, that great. <laughs> and then I never went back to him and it, it was nothing against him or me. It just, just you got to find the right fit. Yeah, um, you do. Yeah. But it is important to have that, uh, that connection with someone who can look at, look at your life sort of from a disinterested standpoint and say, this is what I'm, sensing God doing in your life. This is how I feel God's speaking to you here. Mm -hmm. Um, cause we are notoriously off listening, just generally speaking as human beings, like we're, we're really bad when it's God speaking to us, that absolutely takes a lot of practice, it a does. lot of discernment, yeah. um, a lot of failure. 
But God is merciful and we keep getting back up. Yeah. So should we go to the next virtue? Which is actually two virtues in one Hmm. chapter. And it's humility humility and obedience. And uh, Bonaventure puts those together because they go together. So it's two separate virtues of humility and obedience. But um, so humility is seeing your littleness in relationship to God, right? God is all great and we're just, we're sinners and we're small and unable to do much of anything on our own. And so we, we have this dependence on God and we're just meek and humble. Um, and then obedience is extremely contrary to today's (laughs) idea of what we should be doing. Right. Who obey? No, I'm going to be the CEO. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be the, the bottom rung of the ladder. So, um, so Francis was very humble. He just always viewed himself, um, as a sinner, as, you know, he knew that everything he had whatever it was, was because God gave it to him. So Mm -hmm. any virtue that he had, any possession that he had, any, anything that he had was because God willed him to have it. And that was humbling. And he was always just grateful and thankful and in awe of God. Now he valued, now this is the crazy part, especially when you're thinking about today, he valued obedience so much. Now he started the Franciscan order. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to be in charge of the Franciscan order. <laughs> so when he would travel and do things, he would put a companion. He would say, you are in charge. You tell me what to do. That's how <laughs> much like he would. T- he would say, I'm not going to make any decisions. You tell me what to do. And that is so contrary to anything that we see today. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, he took that like really seriously and then he would preach. So he was known as a great preacher. He was a deacon. He was never a priest. He was a deacon, but he was a preacher and he would tell his faults from, <laughs> from the ambo. Like, like you were saying, he, he, he was like, look, here's, here's where I'm, here's where I go wrong. Here's where I'm a sinner. And this was humi- humi- humility, humility. It was it was just all those things, um, and then he always like when. Sorry, I'm gonna pause for a second. Okay, so when Francis, um, when the person was in power over him or in some kind of position of authority over him, he knew that it was because God willed it. Therefore, mm. it was his obligation to be obedient. So if you just put that in today's context, like like let's just say our children, right? Our children are under us, right? They're in our care because God made it so. He willed it. So it is their obligation to be obedient. Or if your pastor is your pastor, whether you like him or not, God willed him to be your pastor. So you are to be obedient. And I can go all over, you know, I can go in all the hierarchy of the church and the world Mm -hmm. and the way that it goes. 
And so we're to be very docile, right? So um, Francis would use the imagery of a, of a dead body, basically. This is how docile we are to be. If a person like moves that body's head, the head moves and there it stays. <laughs> that's how he told his brothers, that's how docile you are to be. And it is all hmm. because of how little you are compared to God and that all of this that's happening is because that's what he wants for you. So pretty intense. Very intense and very much opposed to the current culture of today. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> Cause obedience is a, it's definitely a virtue that's lacking uh, in the church or out of the church. Uh, sort of this idea that like the local ordinary is the head of the diocese people struggle with this all the time. Um, I know priests who struggle with this. I'm not talking about the diocese of Phoenix, just by the way, everyone listening, but like there's, <laughs> there's priests I know who struggle with their Bishop for whatever reason. And it's almost to the point of disobedience, almost to the point of, well, he wants me to do this. So I'm just going to sneakily do this other thing. It's like, Oh man, that's a terrible idea. Um, not the least of which, because for that priest, he will be judged by God based on his obedience to his bishop, this rightful authority. Mm -hmm. um, but even like you're saying, outside of hierarchy, this is true in the family. It's true um, in in communities, in civil society. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's this uh, notion even... Beyond, like, I think people see something like the divine right of kings where like, okay, the king is over the country. And so obviously the king has authority, but we're talking about even in a pluralistic democratic society, uh, which the church isn't even very fond of, um, generally speaking. Um, they still say, no, the elected and appointed officials over you who have legitimate, competent authority, as long as they're not compelling you to sin you still must be obedient. That is incredibly countercultural and un-American. I don't know if that's the right word, but like, and I'm totally fine with that, but it's, it's so interesting to, to draw from the tradition of the church and realize how at odds our current society and thus the way we're formed is. Yeah. 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 Now we should make the distinction that anything you, you, we are not obligated to obey anything that goes against um, what we know to be true within right. our conscience, a, a well-formed conscience, I should say, not just any conscience, but a well-formed conscience. We are not obligated to obey what is contrary to the faith or, you know, morals and all those things. That's another conversation for another day. But, um, but within rightly ordered um, hierarchies or situations. Yeah. Obedience is required and it's hard, especially because we're at least here, we're, we're told to, you know, to, to success, right? We, we want to work our way up. We want to mm -hmm. get the promotion. We want to get the raise. And then we want to build a team around us. And we want to tell that team what to do. And St. Francis, did the exact opposite of that and said, you tell me what to do. I'll be your team. Even though he was 
one who founded the whole order. He's like, I don't want anything to do with it. (laughs) And he ended up, he ended up establishing, he put in somebody else and, um, to be the, to run it. And he was like, no, I'm, I'm going to just, um, obey, which is just, we just don't think like that. We don't, Mm. we, we are always looking for more power. Um, and I think I say in my, in my article that for Francis, he would be just as willing to obey an entry level position, someone coming into an entry level position as he would a CEO. He would obey that bottom rung guy as readily as he obeyed the CEO of his company. And Mm. I don't know many people that can say that today. You know, that's kind of crazy, right? It is. It is. It does seem crazy. Um, Because obedience, I mean, like, it comes from the Latin to hear, right? To, To listen, like to truly hear and then make it so. That's not something that we think of as giving us freedom. I mean, that, that seems like a shackle, um, especially if it's something that we think we're right. We think that the person telling us something is wrong. Maybe it's not against faith and morals. Maybe it's just a matter of prudential judgment that it's just a varying perspective. Um, I was reading a, a book. I can't remember who wrote it. It was for a, it was on contemplative prayer by a brother for um, other religious but I think the the idea still stands is like if you have to go across the street and it's 15 degrees out and snowing and you know you need a coat, but your superior tells you don't bring your coat, then you don't bring the coat. Like even it doesn't make any sense. There's no common sense to that. Nonetheless, you still are obliged uh, to be obedient. And I just I struggled with that. To be honest, I struggled with that so much when I read that I had to put the book down and I spent like another 10, 15 minutes in contemplative prayer of like, Lord, what, what, why that doesn't make any sense. Um, but that's how highly God does view obedience, Mm -hmm. which goes all the way back to the garden. Right. I mean, that's the one thing, um, he told Adam and Eve was you can do anything you like, just don't eat of this tree which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, like making yourself God saying, well, I know better. So it's the same sort of idea of pride as being opposed to obedience. Um, but it, it's, it's still utterly fascinating. I didn't know that St. Francis put other people in charge of him. I just, he did. that's he so did. shocking. It is sh- it's shocking for us today, <laughs> but it's, it's I, I, again, I go back to like, simpler times. But anyway, and also going back to the humility thing, and I think this kind of speaks to what you were saying was that he would actually prefer to hang. This is the humility part. This, this is crazy too. He would prefer to hang out with people who didn't like him and to hear their rebukes because he viewed them as an opportunity for self-reflection and change and conversion. So he would he would go, um, he would, you know, he would preach and then he'd go find the guy who didn't like his sermon and hear it, hear what he had to say about it and then take that in and take it back to contemplation. So I think it's like this whole, like, 
well, if he tells you you're going to go out without a coat, why would I do that? Well, there's something in there for you. There's some kind of lesson mm. in there for you, right? Or some, you know, maybe a practice of austerity, right? Like maybe you need to be exposing your flesh to the cold. You know, there's some something in that interaction that God wills for your good, whether you see it or not. And your obedience to that is, expresses your receptivity to whatever that is that God wants you to learn in that moment. So kind of weird, but yeah. <laughs> I'm really glad Lent is coming up because I need purification and enlightenment because I am so far from this. Oh, um. we all are. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, it's this Francis is intense. <laughs> He's very, and, very intense. <laughs> in the best of ways. I mean, the saints are such good examples of uh, just being intense and awesome and showing us the way. Yeah. So what's uh, what's the next virtue? Okay, so now we have poverty. Um, again, something he took very seriously. Um, so nothing. These, these, he and his brothers, they had nothing. Um, they had little small huts to live in. They slept on the floor. They um, they didn't do anything. You know, they they didn't have anything. They didn't own anything or anything like that. So this, there's this story that St. Bonaventure tells where this guy comes and he says to St. Francis, he wants to join the order. And so St. Francis says, okay, sell, you know, sell all you have and come follow me, you know, similar to, to Jesus and um, sell all you have and give it to the poor. So the man goes and he takes all his belongings and he distributes them amongst members of his family. And he comes back and says, okay, I got rid of all my belongings. I gave them to all my family. And Francis is like, no, I'm sorry. You deprived the poor. Your <laughs> motivation was not correct. Um, you are still attached to these things because you gave them to your family. So your heart is not correct. You're not, you're not in this for the right reasons. And he rejected him from the order. So, um, motivation and detachment or being motivated by detachment is really the heart of the poverty, right? So it's not just not having anything, but it's wanting the poor to have it and not knowing that it's right there, still right there, safe and protected, right? Mm -hmm. Then the other part, the other kind of key part, this is, this was hard for me to, to accept, it was more virtuous to beg than it was to accept something that was freely given. And the reason for that is the humility. Mm. It is more humble to have to ask for something than it is to just take what someone offers you. So I think in, so when I translate that to our world today, I'm thinking of myself as a busy mom right? Like all this stuff going on, I'm juggling all these balls. It's so much harder for me to say, Hey, someone, I need help. Mm. Can someone help me with this? Than it is for someone to just show up on my doorstep with a casserole. <laughs> That's easy, right? Yeah. So Francis, it, it, it's so counterintuitive to us, right? That begging is virtuous, right? 
especially when someone's offering it, if, especially when it's just right there and someone's knocking on our door and giving it to us, it's more virtuous to have to ask. So mm. he would send his brothers out to like, that's how they got their food was to, to ask for it. Um, and yes, people brought food and things like that, but um, it, it, all, it all goes back to the humility of, of having to like recognize how little you are, how detached you are, how much you are dependent on others for your survival, how much you're dependent on God for your survival. He always um, used the, 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 the story of God providing the manna um, for the Israelites in the desert, right? The, the manna mm -hmm. came down from heaven. God will provide. How much do we trust that our every need will be provided for and that we don't have to have anything? Really, we don't have to have anything and God will take care of us. Well, and it, it struck me when you were describing the, the casserole versus asking for help, that it also is an opportunity for communion with another um, or a real sense of unity or, or community, I should say. But <clears throat> like even in your own home, um, like I'm, I'm pretty stubborn and so is my bride and we will go to great lengths to not ask for help. And we just expect the other to uh, read our minds, basically. But then when we sort of suck it up, have a conversation in humility and say, hey, look, I need help uh, with this and this. And then the other has the opportunity to respond and say, well, I need help with this and this. And then we can actually support one another and be there for one another. So it's this uh, it, humility. Yeah, for sure. Um, but also this spirit of poverty of saying, I need you. Um, and especially for someone like myself or my wife who doesn't want to need anyone sort of by nature, by temperament. Um, me, me too. That's, that's it's, tough. It's it. I am fruitful. so competent. I'm so competent. There's nothing I can't <laughs> like handle. Right. Like that. And that's how we're formed in this world right? Mm. Like the strong, independent, you know, capable. It's like, but really it just goes back to who are we without, what do we have without God? Mm. Right. What do we have without each other, the body of Christ, without our spouse or without our community, without our parish? Um, we, we don't live in a vacuum and we need each other. And he created us to need each other, you know, mm -hmm. very much. He created us to need each other. And so that's what St. Francis did is he's like, we have nothing. Like that, like that was, you know, one of the pillars of his order is like, we have nothing and we are 100% dependent on God and our fellow man, our fellow brother to provide for us, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, I, I want to be careful. That's not for everybody. If we were all, if yeah. we were all poor, like, I mean, like logistically, like, it just wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. <laughs> right. So different people are called to different levels of poverty, mm. but I think it's any of us can give up something, you know, do we need, 
you know, whatever that, you know, pottery barn throw pillow that's <laughs> on our couch. Do we need that? Like we probably don't, you know, or take it the other direction. Can we ask for help when we need it? Can we humble ourselves and, and ask for what we need that we can't provide for ourselves, whatever that mm. is. It, it's not necessarily a material good, but you know, some kind of support or something. Um, we're just not inclined to do that. So like for this Lent, it's like, okay, what can you detach from materially? But then on the flip side, what can you depend on someone else to provide for you that you can't provide for yourself? Mm. You know? So we detach from the world, practice ascesis with austerity, and then we lean into humility and obedience and then poverty. And so what's next? So now we have piety. Now piety is basically the reverence that we give to God that he's owed because he's God. But now, as I said in the beginning, so all these virtues, Francis always starts with God and then it trickles down from there. So for Francis, piety extended to creation. And this is where we see the your typical St. Francis with the bird on his shoulder and the bunnies around him mm -hmm. and everything. This is where this image comes from is because if God created it, it was worthy of the reverence that was owed its creator. Mm -hmm. So he loved God first. He revered God first. But then by extension, anything that God created um, was as respected and as revered by St. Francis as God was because it was mm. an extension of God. So that was any animal, any creation, any human being, he looked at that person or that thing through the eyes of of the God that created them, hmm. which is hard. <laughs> but then this is where if um, you go and read the Canticle of the Sun, he wrote the Canticle of the Sun where he talks about the brother sun, the brother moon, and he goes through and he, all the stanzas go through different levels of creation. And, um, and I should go back. He's, he actually goes from God to angels and saints. And then mm -hmm. to other creations. So he gives the respect and honor due to the creations that give God even greater honor than sinful people down here. So he writes this Canticle of the Sun. And if you read through it, this is how he views the world is that if God created it, how can I not love it? And how can I not respect it the same way that I respect the creator? So again, here we here we are today. Where is that how we look at people? Is that how we look at things? Hmm. And I don't know. Pretty hard. Well, and it, especially those in the church today who <clears throat> sort of balk at any mention of um, like the stewardship of creation as being something that's truly part of being Catholic. Uh, I think that's another particularly American thing is uh, if you happen to be politically conservative and it's like, ah, that's, the, that's the, the lefties. That's, that's their thing. It's like, no, no, we're, we're um, there. We're called to stewardship because 
going back to the garden, that's what we were made for. That's literally the first job uh, that Adam had was, was stewardship of creation and by extension Eve. So <laughs> I, I love that too, the just keeping everything in proper context that God comes first. The angels and the saints come next because they chose God freely and persevered. And then uh, I'd be interested. I don't know if he goes into this or not. Like who comes next? Is it man because he's made in the image and likeness of God? Or is it creation, which teleologically is pointed to God and moves towards that end regardless because it doesn't have free will? I would Mm -hmm. imagine it's probably those made in the image of God. Probably. I, I don't remember if, if, if it was explicitly stated, I know it was, ex- it was explicitly stated God. And then I, I kind of skipped over, but yeah, he goes into the angels and the saints first. So mm. he does have, he has an ordered way of looking at things, always God first, but then yes, these higher created beings that chose God probably, but I, I, if I remember correctly, it kind of all blended together after that. Mm. But if, you, if you were to look at St. Francis, if you were to have a, an actual conversation with him, it would probably be ordered to man. But there was no, I mean, it's not like like an, like a rabbit was owed any less um, reverence because it was still kind of came from the same creator, hmm. right? So it was more about God than the thing, more about God than the creation, right? He loved whatever it was because God created it. So it probably didn't matter too much what it was. He loved it the mm. same way. But he would still be like he, to my knowledge, he wasn't like a vegetarian. Like he would have been fine with, uh, with hunting and killing and eating an animal, as long as it's done with respect and correct and civility. So yeah, I think it, again, it just shows how well ordered his thinking was and how mm-hmm. his view, worldview is just so mm-hmm. consistent. It was very, yeah. Yeah. And when I get to the end, yeah, which is, um, well, the next one, which is charity, which is, this is the Mm. one that kind of was the most interesting to me. So charity was this next virtue. So again, he starts, so, so charity, let me just actually read this from the, um, catechism. So this is in catechism number 1822, paragraph 1822. Charity is the theological virtue by which we love God above all things for his own sake and our neighbor as ourselves for the love of God. So now I find that, or I, I perceive when we talk about charity today, we're talking about to our neighbor. Hmm. I never hear charity to God. I hear, oh, say that and say that, you know, why don't you tell your spouse in charity this? Or why don't you go to your fellow parishioner in charity and express this? And it's always like, or we should be charitable to our neighbors, right? Francis turns this completely on its head. Charity to God above all things. I love it. So if we use the word charity and it's and we make it synonym love, I love God first. Hmm. I don't love my neighbor first. I love God first. And so he just imbues himself. Like he just like cons- he's consumed with this love for God. He just stays in relationship with God and he's consumed 
by this relationship with God, then that drives everything going forward with how he interacts with his neighbor. But because he loves his neighbor, he wants his neighbor to know the love of God. So the Mm. most charitable act he can do for his neighbor is introduce him to Jesus Christ. This is not how we think today. We think of charity and being charitable as being nice. Be nice. And uh, that's not how he, he thought of it. He thought of it as, I love God. And because I love God, I love this guy over here. And because I love this guy over here, I want him to know God. So this is where the Sultan comes in. Mm. He's like, well, I want all these people over, you know, there to know Jesus Christ. Mm. And so he gets on a boat. He's probably with several brothers that he put in charge of him. And he cruises over and he's like, all right, we're going to go introduce all these people to Jesus Christ because we love them, because we love God. And we're going to die for it. And then he goes and all this, it doesn't work, but um, (laughs) he does go and he introduces Jesus Christ. He evangelizes. So I I think if that happened today, would that be called charitable? If we went out Hmm. to, would that be perceived as charitable when today we're supposed to be tolerant of other people's, you know, beliefs or, you know, whatever. Francis would not, would say that the way we view charity today maybe would be the opposite of charity because we're just keeping our opinions to ourselves, letting them live the way that they want to live as an act of charity and tolerance and acceptance, but it's not really introducing them to Jesus Christ. So I think this virtue really like did a loop-de-loop for me um, (laughs) on the, you know, in the context of today's culture. Well, because tolerance is seen as the prime virtue today, Mm -hmm. even though it means a very particular thing. It means um, you have to be tolerant of everybody's view, except for yours. We're not tolerant of your view because you're Christian and think everyone should be. So we're not going to be tolerant of that, but you need to be tolerant of me. So it ends up not meaning anything, but even more than that, it's actually not a virtue at all. It's, it's usually some sort of flimsy excuse to not evangelize. Mm-hmm. Cause of course, as St. John Paul, II says, the faith is always proposed, not imposed. So we can't force people to convert. We shouldn't even want to, it has to be a freely given gift, but we, we, we also can't keep it for ourselves. Um, one of the, my favorite quotes, I don't know who said it first, but like evangelization is being one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. Like that's, that's how we ought to look at it because we love God. We love the other person and we want them to love God too. I mean, that, that has to be, it's what I tell my students in, uh, in religion classes. If your goal is not to get to heaven and bring as many people with you as possible, you need to figure out how to make that your goal because that that's it. Um, but where do we, uh, I mean, how do we 
do that? How do we make that switch? How do we go from this sort of lackluster, lukewarm, we have to be tolerant to boldly proclaiming the gospel again in a way that is uh, truly in charity, not trying to be nice, but um, because, because we live in a pluralistic society. We live in this world that values that above all. Uh, it seems to me that we'd have to sort of dismantle the whole system at so, some point. So, so Francis, so I'm going to say, I'm going to say, start where Francis starts. He starts with God, right? And so adoration, adoration in the blessed sacrament is where you start. You start by loving God and you just in France, St. Francis was in adoration a lot, like a lot, a lot. <laughs> he, he was just always in adoration, at least according to St. Bonaventure. Um, and when you just love God that much and you kind of cultivate that relationship and cultivate that passion for God, then the rest comes. Now, again, like St. Francis, it's being willing and not even willing, but wanting to accept persecution for it, mm -hmm. right? That you let, that you've just spent, you've been in adoration so much. You've received the sacrament of the Eucharist so much. You are just so like at one with God and your love is, I mean, he, um, he had ecstasies and stuff like that because he was just so infused with God and you love God that much that you're willing to suffer for that love and that you're willing to go out on a limb and be chastised and be ostracized and be humiliated to evangelize and tell other people about that love who don't want to hear it and will say and do things that are uncomfortable, you know, and that's charity. Mm. It's not, let's be nice. I, I don't know. I, I, these days I can't stand the word nice. Well, it doesn't mean anything. It's a useless, <laughs> it awful mean... word that should be struck from the English language. If, if, I'm fully on board. If we love somebody, so like, you, you know, we know that our job is to get our spouse to heaven. We love our spouse. We love that person. We want to see them in heaven. Um, and we'll do whatever, hope, you know, hopefully whatever that takes in whatever mm -hmm. form that takes. And sometimes it's painful, you know, it, it can be hard, but you, if you love somebody and if you are truly have a heart of charity for that person, then you want to see them in heaven. And that comes at a cost, um, a, per, a personal cost, mm -hmm. which then gets rewarded later on. <laughs> Well, and, and I, you said that Bonaventure sort of laid out these virtues in a way that <clears throat> sort of was hierarchical and sort of led to this pinnacle of prayer. And I mean, you've already alluded to this, but that that final point is sort of the culmination of all of these things. Yeah. So so Bonaventure kind of ends this little section with his his prayer and. <sighs> This is what I, I always strive for, and I, I don't know how, I don't know that I'm even close yet, but St. Francis was to the point where he was always in prayer, like mm. always in prayer, in conversation with God. So 
it's kind of funny. He talks about how like they'd be traveling and St. Francis would be like, are we almost there? And they'd be like, uh, we've been here like for like four hours <laughs> because he's so unaware of, I, I want to travel like that. I, I want to be able to be so consumed in prayer that I don't even realize that I just went on this really long road trip, right? Or went through this whole like day or got through traffic or whatever, you know, carpool, you know, whatever it was like to not even realize <laughs> that all these things are happening around you because you're so deep in prayer. That's essentially how St. Francis lived. So there wasn't, hmm. he, he reached this point where there was, he was never not in prayer. He was never not in communication with God. And then that is what powered every virtue that, you know, we just talked about that came before it was um, if you are that absorbed in communion with God in your heart how can any of these other things that we just talked about be difficult, you know? Mm. Um, and I think that's probably where, you know, we're falling short today, or at least speaking for myself, it's like, you know, when you're stuck in traffic, when you're mad about this or mad about that, or do, you know, at work consumed in this project, or even me sitting here, you know, like writing, like, am I, you know, I'm consumed with what, with the world, with my mind, with, you know, what communication or raising my kids or, um, gross, my grocery list, my grocery li list is just like always on my mind, you know, things like that. It's like, that's not prayer. And so we just have to get, well, we strive to get to this point where we start with God and we stay with God and then everything else follows after that. And so that's kind of how Francis did that. So, um, and that powered everything. So. There's a, a beautiful insight from the Eastern church of the Jesus prayer as a way to pray unceasingly, this <clears throat> prayer that almost becomes like breathing where you breathe in and you say, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, and then breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you just do that over and over. And I, I practiced that <clears throat> after I was introduced to it. And it, it's so beautiful how this sort of autonomic thing of breathing becomes prayer. And then throughout the day, you recognize your breathing because you don't normally think about that, but then it comes to mind and you go, Oh, right. Jesus mm -hmm. have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then you just like everything kind of clicks back into to place. And it's interesting how each group within Christianity, whether it's East or West, whether it's Francis or uh, the Benedictines and their idea of like prayer and work, um, they all have their different ways of doing this. So it's not like there's one way to accomplish it, which I think is so awesome. So beautiful. Cause we're it's, all so different. It's funny that you mentioned the Jesus prayer and the inhale and the exhale. Cause that's something I practice regularly and something that I actually, when I'm trying to fall asleep and the anxieties and the mind and everything won't slow down. That's particularly when I'll like draw very deeply into that prayer and the inhale and exhale and just like fill myself with the Holy Spirit. And, you know, it, and it's a little more difficult. It's, it's easier to remember when you're trying to sleep and your mind is racing than it is when you're like doing your busy work. But when you do remember mm -hmm. to do that, it's such a blessing. It really just slows everything down, reminds you that God is in control, 
and it doesn't, none of this matters anyway. <laughs> you know, it, it really doesn't because this is our temporary home. And really what matters is our relationship with God. So it, the Jesus prayer is a great tool. Um, again, adoration is a great tool because everything stops in adoration. Well, sometimes my mind doesn't stop, but, you know, <laughs> time kind of stops in adoration. And um, we just really need to teach ourselves to just keep keep breathing him in, like like you said. And just we're not thinking mm -hmm. about our breath, but he's there in that breath and just keep, keep inhaling and exhaling the Holy spirit. And then that'll power the rest. If you're doing that, then, you know, austerity and poverty and charity and obedience and all those things become more second nature because the fuel mm -hmm. is the divine, which we we're just constantly filling ourselves up with. Well, and so this Lent, people will have a chance to <clears throat> dive into this series, learn more about these virtues um, at catholicheartablaze.com. Uh, also be posting it, uh, hopefully on Good Distinctions, at least links to uh, your posts. And uh, you know, just for those listening, it's not something that you need to do all at once. Um, St. Francis did not become enraptured in prayer overnight. This was his whole life. Uh, so maybe it starts with that pebble in the shoe, or maybe it starts with trying the Jesus prayer a few times. Uh, but wherever you are, I feel like what matters the most, at least in, in my experience, is consistency, right? Showing up and letting God do the rest. Because <clears throat> like I often joke, but I'm completely not joking. Um, I'll usually before adults or, or someone I'm catechizing, and I'll say, you know, like Jesus said in the Gospels, apart from me, you can do a little bit somewhat decently, right? No, like apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. And it's true mm -hmm. because there's all these different things that we can do sort of naturally. And that's, that's fine. But like you say, this world is passing and the things that last, the things that are infused with grace, the things that become redemptive, become prayer, become grace for ourselves in the world are the things that we intentionally unite to Jesus. And so if we find that we're not doing anything on a given day, then doing one thing daily for a week, I mean, gosh, that's huge. Because um, we, we don't want to compare ourselves to others. That's not the point. But, but how many people are just sort of going through life aimlessly? Well, like you say, if we start with us, uh, with, with me, like I start with me and I say, okay, I need to come to God. I need to focus on him and allow him to form me and mold me to be whoever he desires me to be, whoever he made me to be, then that will radiate out. I think people want to take on the world um, when all we need to do is take on ourselves and uh, the rest sort of falls into place. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this word of encouragement is, is a good place to end because um, the path to holiness starts exactly where you are. Like, you're like the first, like the first step is right here. You know, it's like the yellow brick road, right? She starts at the very beginning of the yellow brick road. That's where you start, wherever you are on that road. And, you know, even though St. Francis is a tremendous model and one that we can all hope to, you know, reach his level of virtue, even he started at the very 
beginning. Like he was a wealthy man that had to walk away from everything. And, you know, Bonaventure even explains that his conversion, his own conversion was not quick. You know, he had to have a Mm. series of things happen to him to get to the point where he even got here. So this is a lifetime of work. And you're right. You start with one thing, your first step you know, on a path to holiness. And then that one thing becomes another thing. And, oh, you know what? I think I can add one more thing. And then you just keep doing that. And then, you know, hopefully maybe we'll get to, you know, these levels, you know, something to strive for at least. And I was hoping to just provide inspiration as opposed to a destination, you know, like trigger a little thought of, you know, what's one more thing that I can do. Beautiful. Well, thank you for taking this on and thank you for sharing it with the world. And thank uh, thanks for coming on and thanks for a great conversation. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Jen. So again, for those listening, catholicheartablaze.com. Check it out. Uh, go find Jen Arnold on LinkedIn as well and follow her there. And uh, if you haven't yet subscribed to Good Distinctions, you can go to gooddistinctions.com to become a free or paid subscriber. If you enjoy these episodes, if you enjoy the conversation, please consider becoming a paid subscriber for $5 a month uh, or $50 a year. And that'll help continue um, all of the things that uh, we have planned here at Good Distinctions, hopefully uh, keeping everything oriented towards God and moving forward in the right direction. If you have any comments, questions, thoughts, feel free to send an email to gooddistinctions at gmail.com. And I will see you next week. Jen, thanks again. Thank you.